Imagine, demand and build a world transformed. Hello, hello and welcome to today's panel at the World Transformed where we're going to be talking about uh, all four nations of the UK and the breakup of Britain. And uh, do we have a fantastic panel ready for you today? Um, I, you know, you can probably guess where they're all from if you have a basic sense of the kind of history and geography of these islands. But um, but we've had a bit of wrangling of the order because uh, Alison from Northern Ireland isn't um, here yet. She's covering a court case, and so we are going to start with um, with an excellent comrade, uh, Rory Scothorn, who. Um, has been a kind of leading thinker about the role of the left in the Scottish independence debate. And Rory is going to chat to us for a bit about the situation in Scotland. So, um, Rory, uh, can I just hand over to you? Hello. Um, I hope everyone can hear me. Um, thanks so much for having me on. Um, World Transformed is such a great addition to the Labour movement and the left. Um, I'm very excited to be talking about Scotland, which is all I can talk about. Um, I'll just I'll just start. I'm going to kind of give a, an overview of where uh, where this has all come from, where, where Scottish nationalism has kind of emerged from. Uh, so there's a kind of long view here, and then I'll talk about some of the more specifics, but I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. Um, one of the worst things you can possibly do when trying to talk about Scottish nationalism seriously is to bring up the winner of the 1995 Academy Award for Best Picture. It's Mel Gibson's film Braveheart, so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, sorry if I'm muffled, and um, hopefully you can hear me a bit better there. Um, so Braveheart is obviously totally nonsense, full of outrageous historical inaccuracies and some appalling gender politics, and in that sense is a pretty good insight into a certain element of the modern Scottish nationalist movement. Um, but it's not particularly representative of the movement as a whole. Uh, the first big battle in the film is supposed to be uh, the Battle of Stirling Bridge. It's not even a bridge. It takes place in a big, nice big, big green field. And William Wallace has managed to get a handful of boring Scottish nobles to bring their army along. Um, and they're all lined up, waiting for him to arrive. And he's running late. Uh, and there's these two guys at the front of the ranks, uh, facing down the English army. Uh, and they, they're kind of these avatars for ordinary working folk. Uh, they're getting frustrated with waiting around. They're worried about the size of the English army. One of them gets fed up and shouts, come on, lads, I'm not dying for these bastards. Let's go home. And everyone starts drifting off home and the nobles are panicking. And then Wallace and his troops show up on horses and are riding through looking fierce and they're all painted blue. And they stir the troops up into this violent frenzy and they're going to slaughter the English and it's all uh, very exciting. And, and this came out in 1995, so two years before Scotland voted for devolution. And what you get in Project Scottish nationalism is occasional incredibly ignorant people going, oh, well, it's all just Braveheart nationalism and so on. And it's not. Um, but watching the film is quite interesting for thinking about Scottish nationalism. It's, it's kind of abstractly speaking a fantastic bit of nationalist propaganda. There's a clear populist angle in that scene where these two guys feel no solidarity whatsoever with these kind of escape local elites who are constantly compromising with the English, constantly selling out the people. And so the masses have no motivation to fight for their identity. Uh, 
against this foreign invader until William Wallace shows up and stirs them into revolt by talking about freedom, something that their own rulers have never offered them. This is kind of classic populist stuff. And this is a big turning point in a film where leadership of the nation transfers from this pragmatic, self-interested local elite towards this charismatic populace. And so the temptation is to say that something similar has happened in Scotland, where Labour was the old, pragmatic, calculating elite that was kind of wiped out and replaced by the SNP, this new national hero to give us something worth fighting and dying for. I don't think this is really the case. I think um, that's the kind of character you tend to get from uh, folks watching from afar or from kind of unionists who are trying to make a point. Um, What's actually happening in Scotland is significantly less romantic than that, and significantly less exciting than that. If anything, uh, the rise of uh, modern nationalism uh, in the form of the SNP is really the story of the decline of something worth dying for, um, and its replacement by that desire to go home and be left in peace. For a lot of the UK's history, um, the Scots were dying for those bastards. They were made up a, a disproportionate chunk of the British armed forces that conquered much of the world, won a couple of world wars, and the bastards they died for were unionists. And it wasn't just the English ruling class, it was the Scottish ruling class as well. And again, I'm not sure how the audio is here, and it seems like it's a bit muffled, and maybe I can find something about it. Um, let's put some headphones on. Okay, let me just try and get some headphones in the mic on those. Two seconds. Uh -huh. Do -do -do. I realise I forgot to introduce myself at the beginning. I'm Adam Ramsey from Open Democracy, and I am the most boring person on this panel, which is why I didn't think to tell you who I am. But um. But, you know, uh, while we wait for Rory, you're going to get some kind of, you know, random filler chat from me. Um, and, you know, I, I have to say that as a, what you might call surprising Scottish person, there you go. Rory's got headphones now. Can we hear you better? Is that better? Sound Hooray, there we go. Sorry. Take it away, Rory. Okay, uh, I was talking about Braveheart and how... Um, what we're what we're looking at here is the decline of uh, something worth dying for in in kind of British identity, but also in in Scottish identity to an extent. So, when Scotland was kind of a kind of passionate and paid up part of of the Union, um, for much of the you know nineteenth and twentieth centuries, uh, the philosophy underpinning this was what uh, historians have called Unionist nationalism. Um, this was not a kind of integrationist uh, British unionism or assimilationist British unionism. This was a unionism which was based on the idea of a distinct Scottish and patriotic interest in the union. The union was a way of preserving Scotland's distinctiveness and its interests uh, as part of something bigger. Uh, unionist nationalists would lean heavily on the symbol of the Scottish soldier with his own regiments and his own iconography. Uh, there's a giant monument to William Wallace at Stirling, which was built with the support of Victorian Unionists. They believed that Wallace's struggle for independence had ensured that Scotland could negotiate its own entry to the Union rather than being conquered. And in doing so, the, the Treaty of Union preserved a whole range of Scottish institutions intact, from the church, law, um, the education system, local government, 
these things have never been devolved. They've always been autonomous. And so they functioned as kind of carriers of a kind of background, banal Scottish national identity all the way through the history of the Union. But once you get into the first few decades of the 20th century, Scotland has a distinctive unionist industrial bourgeoisie, which rapidly begins to decline. Heavy industry faces more competition from across the globe. The economy is crippled after the First World War and it's heavy industry, which is really hit hardest. The union was still kept alive, however, and briefly strengthened by the expansion of the franchise, uh, the growing success of a br genuinely British-wide labour movement. And alongside that labour movement is a new and modernising administrative class, which is starting to oversee the welfare state. These um, declining uh, privately owned industries start to be taken over by the public sector. And again, you've got a kind of investment in an idea of Britishness. This is a, a multinational vision of Britishness, which is still worth fighting for. It's rooted quite deeply in industrial communities, but also in a kind of technocratic and middle-class vision of state-driven progress. But by the time you get to the late 60s and 70s, you start to see the capacity and maneuverability of the state begin to decline. Domestic industries start to be offshored. Uh, American and Japanese industries start coming in and, and running Scottish industries as branch plants. Um, finance capital, by the time you get into the 80s, starts to really take over. And of course, as we all know, this process also starts to crush the life out of the labor movement. And if you look at the beginnings of modern nationalism, particularly more social democratic left-wing visions of nationalism in the 60s and 70s, a lot of the discussion shifts away from earlier quite romantic visions of Scottishness and into a, a deeper and more painful kind of disillusionment with the British state. We're still dealing with the consequences of that moment, that, that, that shift away from a sense that Britishness really offered something. It, had, it was a way of keeping your communities alive, um, that the, the, the labour states or the social state was something that communities had a real direct lived investment in. And once Thatcher starts to take over um, and, and you get a British ruling class that really kind of embraces that particular kind of decline, the collapse of forms of industrial and social citizenship in which everyone has a stake and its replacement with a citizenship based on property ownership, consumerism. These are things where people start to think, well, what is Scotland, uh, what's Scotland's connection to this vision of Britishness? particularly the decline of a, a general British popular sovereignty. That's not to say that the British people are sovereign, we have parliamentary sovereignty, but a sense that people have the power to shape the world around them really does decline during this period. Um, Britain no longer provides what we might call the conditions of self-determination. Uh, in industrial Britain, with a, a kind of strong labor movement uh, that, that could in circumstances tell capital what to do, Scotland had arguably a greater capacity for a, a real and, and meaningful form of self-determination than it does now, even though we had no parliament at all. Scotland had uh, a ready-made fallback for a kind of alternative vision of citizenship throughout the 80s and 90s. We, we had that those kind of raw materials of identity preserved throughout the union. And these were embraced not just by the SNP, but by Labour through the 80s and 90s. Labour's ability to offer uh, a Scottish Parliament was a big part of their appeal in the 80s and 90s and their continued defence of that vision of Britishness as, as social citizenship um, stood them in pretty good stead well, well into the 2000s. 
But as the kind of long effects of that transition began to hit home, you start to see the S&P more capably taking over that mantle and offering what is actually quite a different vision of Scottishness. Um, so Labour's idea of a unionist Scottish uh, nationhood uh, was to a huge chunk of the population worth fighting and dying for, I think. Is nationalist Scotland the same thing? Is this a kind of new form of deep uh, existential loyalty that will drive people into some kind of revolt that might be potentially useful for the left? Um, Tom Nairn used to talk about rolling mutinies um, across Britain's forgotten regions and nations. Um, and, and people today in, in the Scottish nationalist movement talk about kind of mass civil disobedience, some kind of Scottish revolution if Westminster refuses a Scottish independence referendum. But when you look at the SNP's own platform, it does seem to be based much more on a kind of resignation than a, a kind of a deeper nationalistic uh, sense of popular agency. It's really about pragmatic adaptation by more competent elites to a new world order, much more than the kind of world-making agency that underpinned uh, both imperialist and laborist visions of statehood. So that brings us to the kind of final point, and this is about Braveheart too. This isn't a Scottish movie. Um, this was a global film targeted at an international audience, playing some key elements of a globalized culture that turned the plucky little guy, wherever he was, into a kind of saleable commodity. Um, the key thing about Scotland here was that it provided these kind of glamorous, slightly exotic ethnic roots, rather than um, you know, a, a genuinely uh, internationalist vision of popular sovereignty. This was about some kind of deep, authentic spirits that could struggle for liberation. And this is fashionable. It's, it's, it's a kind of global zeitgeist. Um, and one of the things that's really underpinning modern Scottish nationalism, I think, is a sense that Scotland is a better container for new forms of global identity, globalized identity, than Britishness is. Britishness feels old fashioned. It feels quite insular. Scottishness has been refashioned as something quite open and inclusive, and frankly, as an effective commodity to sell as your own identity on the world market. So what the SNP are mobilizing today is not this deep activism or a kind of radical break with Britishness. Um, what Scottish nationalism mobilizes now is more a kind of demand for globalization to fulfill its participatory and democratic promise. And we know, I think, on the left today, how shallow that promise really is. So I suppose one of the things I want to open up the discussion for people is what usefulness there might be in um, that kind of nationalism, a kind of fairly globalized, um, not internationalist, but cosmopolitan nationalism that doesn't really have too many deep roots in um, uh, any kind of radical identity or social democratic agency, but it's more about adapting to the world as it is. Um, so I'll wrap up with that um, as a kind of starting provocation and uh, leave it to the others to fill in the gaps at the rest of the UK. So thanks very much. Thank you, Rory. And I, I think it's fair to say that not only did you give a sort of good recent economic history of uh, the kind of causes of the rise of support for Scottish independence, but also in a sense, a, a good context for us to see all of this conversation, the industrial decline, the inability of Britishness and British state to reproduce themselves and to kind of develop uh, the issues which I'm sure Harriet would, you know, be interesting on too. I'm Harriet Prothero-Davis. 
next is our uh, house colleague, um, Harriet is a trade union officer. She's very involved in Momentum. I think she's vice chair of Momentum at the moment, if I'm not mistaken. And um, and was also, once upon a time, very involved in um, the Scottish independence debate in 2014, when uh, she was a student up here in Edinburgh, um, which is where I know her from. So Harriet, it's great to see you again and take us away. Thanks, Adam. <clears throat> I'm glad we had a, histor uh, a historical analysis and an academic analysis because you're not going to get that from me. So if you're expecting that, forget it. You're having a political analysis, okay? I kind of want to start this by, I want to aim this essentially at the English left, right? And I think the English left tend to have a bad understanding of devolution and independence. And I'm sorry, it's a bit harsh, um, but it's something that I find incredibly frustrating. And I think it's frustrating to be part of a movement. And, you know, when I say movement, I mean a broad stroke of the UK left who seem to be having different conversations in different parts of the UK. So I want to use this to kind of unite us around a common cause. And I want that cause to be the fact that the British state is antithetical to socialism. And I think we need to look for alternatives. So that's what I'm going to begin with. So... Um, I guess many of you will be wondering whether, so I'm going to talk about Wales, obviously, as you can tell, um, whether Welsh Labour members support independence and what the picture is for us in Wales. Um, and support for independence in the Welsh Labour Party is growing at a phenomenal rate. Just two years ago, support within the Labour Party was 20% in favour of independence, and now it's 51%. So that's a majority of them Welsh independence and as we can talk with uh, with Rory later I think that would be a radically different situation if Scottish Labour had had these figures um, some time ago I think we would have seen a different approach to the SNP if it had been this way so I think it's quite interesting for us to to kind of frame it within that context of how well supported it actually is becoming in Wales so I'm part of a group called Labour for an Indie Wales and we know that structural change won't come from the centre Federalism has been called for for about 200 years in the UK and it hasn't worked yet. And many of us here will have the analysis that devolution was used um, to quell nationalist sentiment. But actually, I think it's done the opposite. Devolution started the conversation. Where did they expect it was going to end? And when you start, you know, creating your own laws, you're going to have an effect on culture. So inevitably, there will be legal and cultural differences between Wales and England. Some of this might be hot takes, right? So get in the comments and I'll read your comments in a minute. <laughs> so I kind of want to outline some of the cultural differences very, very briefly. So I did a previous talk with Adam before for Open Democracy, and I gave this example there, but I think it's an important one to raise here. Um, to me, this was a big signifier that made me realise how different the nations have become. And I think that was Bernard Castle when Dominic Cummins drove to Bernard Castle. As some, as bad as some, you know, Welsh ministers and spads can be, I very much doubt that a Welsh minister would have pulled that stunt. And I think this, to me, speaks to a wider culture of elites dominating UK society with Etonian arrogance and entitlement. And I think, for example, the cultural differences here in Wales: we don't have Etonians running the government; we have West Wallian farmers. So there's a cultural difference, which I could also argue is class-based. Um, I could come on to that later, though, because I think that is definitely more of a hot take. Um, 
something that's happening at the moment that I think is very, very interesting in terms of how we're looking at um, devolution is the internal market bill. I think this will probably come up in the conversation as well. This huge power grab that we're seeing from Westminster to overwrite um, devolved areas and the laws of devolved areas in their favour. If you ever needed any evidence of the Tories and the UK government want to keep control, that is one of them. But I think um, another point that we've got coming up on the horizon is going to be the agriculture bill um, and the trade bill. And these are going to have huge impacts on parts of the UK, such as Wales. So, for example, a huge section of the Welsh economy is down to farming. And the agriculture and trade bills will really hit Welsh farmers, especially small farmers, because when there's no export market, we're going to have a huge problem, a.k.a. you know, like tariff-free trade to Europe. Um, the NFU, the National Farmers Union, have said that if Welsh lamb um, do not have tariff-free exports to the European economic area, then there'll be a 90% price drop um, yeah, in the, in the price of lamb. Sorry, you're probably thinking, like, why is she going on about lamb? But if it's, it's a huge part of the UK market and the Tories are riding roughshod over it, then we've got a huge problem here, especially because, for example, the price of lamb is going to absolutely plummet and farmers are expecting to be decimated in Wales. And what this will do will have an effect on language as well. So um, most small farmers in West Wales and North Wales are Welsh-speaking farms. Um, so if it's the case that these small Welsh farms end up closing up shop, having to sell land in a hurry because they can't afford to keep their farms open anymore, it's going to have a huge effect on the Welsh language. Um, and people will end up moving to northern cities of England or southern places in um, Wales, southern Wales, where language is not used. So there's going to be whole areas of Wales that the Tories at the moment <laughs> haven't really considered in these trade bills and these power grabs and these trade deals with America, where we're going to you know, push down uh, the price of meat internally to the market, but also fill the market with really, really cheap, horrible meat that Welsh farmers can't compete with. I know this sounds daft. I'm spending such a long time talking about farms, but um, if you live in Wales, you'd understand. <laughs> so these are just like small examples of where I think we're going to see huge cultural differences coming up and people really looking towards the assembly to try and get help and I think there's there's a really interesting move at the moment if any of you are on Twitter like I'm I'm not very good on Twitter but Welsh Twitter um I seem to like have made inroads into and Welsh Twitter is essentially young pro-independence activists the younger generations are very, very much in favour of independence at the moment. And I know Yes Cymru has just gained about 7,000 members. They gained 3,000 members after the Bernard Castle incident alone. Like their membership is skyrocketing and also the support within Welsh Labour is skyrocketing. And the younger generations are really, really putting energy behind talking about independence and the future of Wales. There's new Welsh media, um, for example, there's uh, organisations such as Hanch, Welsh Language Media and Aman Cymru, Welsh Language Media as well. And then you've got Nation Cymru and Voice Wales, all trying to like um, swerve the cultural analysis from Westminster and from the British press, which the Welsh press mainly is. The most press we have in uh, in Wales, the British press, we have very, very little Welsh press. We only have Wales online, essentially. So the cultural um, backdrop to this is growing and growing. Um, and also, I think it's important uh, when we're talking about younger people and their draw towards independence is to look at what the Welsh Assembly has done. So we passed uh, a groundbreaking act called the Future Generations Act. Um, 
I think it was the first in the world, the first parliament in the world to consider um, legislation where future generations had to be con um, considered in every decision. So it means that laws through the Welsh Assembly always have to have an analysis of the impact it's going to have for future generations coming behind them and I think that's made us much more conscious as a nation um, towards what we're saying publicly what we're doing publicly and how it affects people anyway I'm going to bring it back to why I think a TWT audience will be interested in this and I think that if we want change in the UK and if we want to see socialism in the UK we really have to understand the British state is going to fight this off tooth and nail as we've just seen with the last uh, election and as we've seen with the decimation of the Corbyn project one of the only ways I can see people really like holding the feet to the fire of the establishment is through growing independence movements and I know for the left it's a really tricky conversation to talk about independence because it's quickly comes on to a conversation about nationalism. Um, but in this instance, I think we can really see the difference of nationalisms between the nationalism of the British state and, for example, the nationalism of Plaid Cymru or the Welsh nationalists on Twitter, uh, which tends to be a much more egalitarian and socially aware nationalism. So I think for those watching in England, I think if we're going to really have this conversation about how we can fundamentally change the UK, we need to look at alternative options such as independence. And I want us to be able to inspire these conversations across the country. Um, and I want you to look to the West Whalian farmers instead of the Etonians for the change that we want to have. Um, I'm going to wrap up there. And I feel like I've waffled too much about farming, but uh, whatever. <laughs> Harriet, I um, here's a little known fact. I grew up on a sheep farm. My first five years were spent helping my dad round up sheep. So I, uh, you know, very happy to chat about farming all day long. And please don't apologise for doing so. Um, thank you so much, Harriet. That was great. And I think that, you know, many of us will be familiar with, um, with the quote that you can no more get democratic socialism through the British state than you can get milk from a vulture. And I think that, you know, as, as you said, uh, the lack of understanding on the English left and the lack of conversation on the English left about that fundamental conundrum that we live under a state that was built to plunder the rest of the world and enrich the British ruling class, not a state that is designed for egalitarianism, never mind socialism, is, uh, is often frustrating. Um, now, Harriet, you talked a lot about uh, Englishness and how people in England, comrades in England, need to think more um, about some of these questions. That is uh, obviously not true of everyone. Um, one example of someone who has done a lot of thinking about this and writing about this is our next panellist. Alex Niven um, is a music star, he's an academic, he's a great writer, and um, I'm going to hand over to him right now. Thanks, Adam. Um, yeah, well, I mean, coming after Harriet's, uh, Harriet's section, I, think, I guess it would make sense now uh, to have someone who, you know, kind of at this point sort of lifts up their shirt and to reveal a kind of, you know, a tattoo of a St George's flag and kind of uh, really advocates uh, the English cause in the case case of Englishness. Um, I'm not going to do that, um, as Adam says. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I've sort of thought and, and written quite a bit about Englishness, but really from a kind of critical, kind of deconstructive uh, point of view, um, I think. Uh, you know, Englishness is is something that we need to talk about, and, and I'm really interested in hearing what the other panelists have to say as we sort of open this up, and what other contributors have to say. Um, so please 
please jump in uh, and I'm interested to hear what people say. Um, but I think we, we have to be clear that we start from a point at which Englishness is something that has to be interrogated from a left-wing point of view, as Harriet says. And I sort of wholeheartedly agree with her point about, you know, the British state being antithetical to socialism, certainly the British, British state in its current form. Uh, but I would also go further and say that, you know, Englishness as it currently exists and England as it currently exists um, are also antithetical to socialism. Um, I mean, just to kind of situate this sort of discussion about Englishness historically, first of all, um, I mean, there are were, there were kind of two, two versions of England and two versions of England, Englishness, uh, broadly speaking, I think. Uh, one is a sort of deep historical version of England and Englishness, which goes back, uh, you know, throughout the centuries, England was a country, in the, certainly in the medieval periods, you know, not for a, a, a huge uh, portion of human history, for, for a few hundred years, really, and obviously with the kind of complicating factor of it having lands in France and uh, the, the kind of border with Wales being very porous and the border with Scotland also being very porous. Um, but I think it's fair to say that England was a nation state um, for several hundred years, a legitimate nation state. It hasn't been so um, since the Act of Union and really since then, even extending into the present day, there's a kind of terminal confusion in terms of you know, where England stops and Britain begins and what the relationship between Englishness and Britishness is, uh, you know, and England and Britain are still really confused and you still get people kind of talking about, you know, in extreme cases, you know, Andy Murray being English and, um, you know, people from different parts of the British Isles being um, English, English men or women. women. Um, so that's the kind of deep historical context, which, as I say, extends into the present day and, and, and is most characterized by this kind of confusion between England and Britain, which isn't quite resolvable, and we certainly haven't resolved, I don't think. Um, there's also this kind of more recent, uh, much more recently, really kind of beginning in the 90s, and I think coinciding with debates about Welsh and Scottish uh, devolution and, and subsequently independence, uh, there has been a kind of, um, uh, I guess, a kind of pushback from England you know, this uh, a kind of response to these discussions about devolution and independence um, in Scotland and Wales and Ireland's obviously a kind of separate discussion entirely. Um, you know, you've started to see this debates about, you know, should we have an English parliament? Should there be kind of devolution in England? What does it mean to be English specifically as opposed to British? Um, I'm mostly sort of quite critical of that as well. I think obviously that's, you know, in an extreme uh, since that's that, that has a kind of far right uh, manifestation, the kind of you know um, the, the, you see you see the fact that you know um, far right parties in the late 20th century tended to be you know British, you know the British National Party, um, uh, you know even UKIP founded in the 90s, but then post millennium you've seen a kind of uh, an embrace by the far right of Englishness specifically, the English Defence League, for example. Um, and that's been mirrored in a kind of sort of conservative, sort of centrist, liberal um, embrace of Englishness as well. You see kind of conservative commentators, um, you know, writing kind of middle brow books about what it means to be English. Um, you know, there's a book Ben Fogel published a few years ago called uh, English, you know, Marmite Queuing and the Weather. So the whole kind of uh, 
sort of soft conservative kind of centrist middle brow revival of Englishness, which I also think is kind of mostly uh, BS and certainly not really very socialist. Clearly, there is, um, you know, away from the far right and the near right, the centre, there has also um, been a revival of debates about progressive patriotism, so-called. Um, some of those are very meaningful and have a lot to be said for them. Um, I think, you know, we, we are going to perhaps in the course of this panel, beginning with the beginning with this, this panel and the discussion, you know, have to start talking about Englishness um, from a left wing point of view and what that might mean for socialists. Uh, nevertheless, I, I think those examples that, you know, they tend to be um, overwhelmed by uh, the kind of far right and the center in a way that I, I just think, you know, you know, advocating a, a kind of unified progressive Englishness is going to be so difficult in the face of, you know, far right racism and kind of centrist and conservative, uh, a kind of soft nationalism. Um, I'm not personally persuaded that a progressive Englishness uh, is possible. Um, and again, I'd be interested to hear what other people have to say about this. Um, to, to sort of counterpose with that, just finally, um, I think what we have to counterpose with that is, you know, thinking about England as a place of different regions or different kind of civic uh, areas, different kind of civic territories. Uh, you know, this is underlined by the fact that, you know, if we're talking, you know, in the context of this, this discussion about the four nations, um, England is a very, very different nation to Scotland, Wales and um, Ireland, Northern Ireland. Um, it, you know, the population of England is uh, over 55 million in comparison with uh, the other nations, which, you know, tend to be between, you know, three, I think Wales is just over three, Scotland between five and six and Ireland, depending on, you know, even if um, Ireland reunited, it would be, uh, I think, eight or nine million. England is a, is a kind of vastly bigger country. It's the kind of imperial centre of um, of the British Isles. And I think, you know, if, if we're going to have a discussion about devolution to, uh, to, to the nations, uh, and if we're going to have this discussion, which is being really forced upon us by the imminent likelihood of Scottish independence, uh, I think, you know, we're going to have to respond to that with a discussion about some form of devolution of power to the English regions or, or English civic areas. There are various different ways of doing it. Um, as Harriet says, federalism has not yet materialized, uh, you know, the kind of federal devolution of the English regions would be one way to do this. Uh, that hasn't happened and we have to be realistic that it doesn't seem like an imminent possibility um, under Tory, Tory rule. Uh, nevertheless, I think, you know, the key thing is if we're talking about England uh, kind of starting again and, and kind of starting again, um, uh, you know, reimagining a sort of positive way forward for England um, I think, you know, it, this has to involve kind of devolution to the regions and, uh, you know, in a way that is sometimes analogous with um, devolution to the nations. So I think that's, that's all I've got to say for now. Great. Well, thank you, Alex. And I think, um, you know, I think we can all appreciate that uh, people in England and the English left feeling your way into this conversation has been quite hard for a lot of um, people on the English left. I think a lot of people really appreciated your contributions to that conversation. So um, thanks so much for bringing that today. Um, 
Next, we are going to be chatting about Ireland. Now, I should say that in my original lineup, we um we uh, I wanted to go from the population-wise smallest kind of of the territories of the UK, um, which the North of Ireland still is for the moment, um, whether it likes it or not, uh, to the largest. But we've um, we've jumbled things around, um, and and we're going to talk about Ireland next. I think it's important to acknowledge when we do that the kind of history and situation in Ireland is in many ways quite different from that in Scotland, Wales and England. And while it is, I think, right that it's part of this conversation, we also need to think about some of those differences of relationship and of power um, in that context. But I'm sure that Alison has much more to say about that than I do. Um, Alison is a cracking journalist based um, in Belfast for the Irish News, which is the leading publication of the Irish community in the north of Ireland. And um, Alison, take us away. Okay, I suppose, as you said, it, it's very different because the historical context at, at which we come at, you know, when you talk about nationalist politics in, in the island of Ireland, next year will be the centenary of the formation of Northern Ireland. So it'll be 100 years since this island was partitioned. Um, and that's key, I suppose, when we come to talk about what's happening now in a modern context. So we had a, a very lengthy conflict and thousands of lives were lost. And that was, you know, in a bid to force Irish reunification, which was never going to happen by that method. Um, and what we have now in a power sharing government was something that I think that many people would have been quite willing to accept, at least in the sort of short to medium term. So as long as we had peace and we had devolution and we had politicians who were locally elected, who were fighting our corner, I think that most people could have probably lived with that settlement had it not been for a series of more recent events. So what we have had is we have always, at the, the current state of affairs in Northern Ireland is we had a, a mandatory power sharing government that was originally intended or designed to have two parties of the, the moderate nationalist and unionist um, communities in, in positions of, of first and deputy first minister. <clears throat> so this was a government that was designed at the time 20 years ago to have the Ulster Unionists and the SDLP as first and deputy first minister. Voting patterns changed quite dramatically over that time and therefore we have the DUP and Sinn Féin so you know as, as, as far to one side and as far to the other side as you can possibly get who are now attempting to, to share power um, and that created a very different dynamic because for Republicans and for Sinn Féin the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement was not a settlement, it was a process. Unionists, I think, believe that at that stage it would be a settlement to what was happening here that would be a permanent solution. Um, but that was never going to be the case because demographics have changed. And that comes down to something just quite simple as if you go back to the, you know, the, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s and even the 80s, Catholics just had more children. It's as simple as that. You know, I'm from a family of nine. Um, and that would have been the norm where I came, where I came from at that time. Um, and so we have a, a much larger population of young people um, who are from the Catholic nationalist background than we do coming through of people from the, the unionist loyalist background. So what was designed as a, a unionist state for a unionist government with a unionist majority in those hundred years changed much quicker than I think that the people who designed this region expected to. Uh, we now have almost 50-50 and so that in itself pushed talk of a, of a border poll and reunification um, and it gave nationalism a new voice but then something else came along which we hadn't fully really expected which was Brexit and um, we know now 
that Northern Ireland did not come into the thinking of those people who championed Brexit during that referendum. And it was only after they received, you know, the leave result that they decided and the, the realisation that there was, you know, a huge land border between part of the UK and the EU that needed sorted out came into their line of sight. And the mess that we have seen that have came, has came from that, I think, has been very frustrating to watch, you know, from, from this side of the channel. And, and this week, as the Internal Markets Bill was being discussed in the Commons, I found myself, you know, screaming at the television screen at the lack of knowledge that exists in relation to what actually are the realities of living on this island and how that partition and how that border and how Brexit is going to affect that and affect our peace. But what that did do was it pushed the, the campaign to discuss reunification, to discuss what is now being called a new Ireland rather than a united Ireland. So, you know, in, in the, the Belfast of my childhood, the campaign for reunification was one that was being led by more harder line Republicans. It was one that had a violent armed wing. And it was one that, you know, sung patriotic songs of a nation once again. We, we no longer speak in that context anymore. What we now speak of is, is a new Ireland, which will accommodate all kinds of, of religious beliefs and people from all different types of backgrounds who have now made this island their home. It's a very different conversation. And it's one that really comes down not to identity and not to what kind of passport you can have. So. As part of the Good Friday Agreement and as someone from Northern Ireland, I have dual identity, if you like. I can have a, a British passport or an Irish passport or both. And in many occasions in my life, I have had both. I found one was very useful if travelling to Russia and the other very useful if travelling to Israel. So I had the best of both worlds in that respect. But that would have been down to identity and flags and things that, you know, you associate with Northern Ireland, that sort of very vitriolical, you know, people who, who their identity above all else matters. Now we're talking about economics. So the, the talk of, of uh, reunification, the, 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 the campaign which those on the left have seen is their best opportunity to try and create this new island is one that is based on the economic mayhem that we believe or has been predicted that will follow after Brexit. Um, and, and to listen to members of the Conservative Party gaslight and people who live here this week by claiming that this internal markets bill, which is going to you know, breach an international treaty, is all for our own good. It's for the protection of the Good Friday Agreement, but nothing could be further from the truth. Um, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, which was introduced into the withdrawal agreement, was a sort of poor sister of Theresa May's backstop. There is no Brexit that's good for a tiny island like this, which has to exist and function um, in terms of, of half of it being within the EU and, and uh, another portion of it having left. None of those ideas are good. So you had then a second option, which was the backstop, which was obviously rejected because at that stage we could see that English nationalism, that the Brexiteers, that the people who for Brexit became like a cult, like something that had to be achieved at all costs, regardless of whether it damaged the union they claimed to want to protect. Forced Theresa May then out, and we have now this government, which I think that is probably, if you are a unionist and you're, you know, want the union to be preserved, they're probably doing a better job of breaking it up than anyone on the left could ever do, because the actions that they're taking in relation to Brexit are going to force the hand of people in Scotland and also of people in Northern Ireland. I would have thought, if you had have asked me, five or ten years ago, that we will have a border poll on this island for, for unification, but possibly not in my lifetime. I was pretty sure 
that there would be reunification of this island, maybe in my children's later life or possibly my grandchildren's now. I'm fairly sure that there will be a border pole on this island within the next five or seven years. Um, and that has been forced because of the attitudes of Brexit. And what people can see, and even moderate, the people in the middle can see is, is a lack of understanding of how we live here, a lack of understanding of the complexities and the politics of this island um, from our sort of overlords in Westminster who are making decisions that are really to the detriment of the people who live here. And that is something that I think has given nationalist politics new life because they're able to point to how the quality of life for people who live here is being greatly reduced by being attached to a union which clearly does not care for them and which uses them as collateral damage when it comes to negotiations in relation to Brexit. Something else that I found interesting that, that again was something that none of us could have predicted was the, the reaction to the pandemic. So we have had COVID and we've had a reaction to that. We have watched as what happened was we had a health minister who is a, a unionist and then we had other ministers who were Sinn Féin from a nationalist point of view. They argued for lockdown earlier. Unionism was looking towards Westminster for direction. Nationalism was looking towards Dublin for direction. And all of a sudden, I think that both came together and realised that as a tiny island, that the best healthcare response that we could possibly have was to try and align ourselves with the South in terms of lockdown and opening up again. And so what was seen as cooperation on a scale that probably hasn't been seen before in this island between two different governments in terms of the healthcare approach to the pandemic and things like that will be seized on when this is long gone and settled um, by those from the left and from nationalists who will say we can see that we were better off as one and as operating as one. So come next year there's going to be a number of events that have been planned to either celebrate or commemorate the division of this island depending on what side of, of the, 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 the line you stand on um, and that will be interesting because will we be discussing the separation, the partition of Ireland in terms of its future and how we will live as a divided state? Or is this a sort of reflection almost, you know, is, is it given a sort of eulogy to a state that is basically on its last legs and, and on its way out? What we've also seen, similar to what, you know, what, what, what was spoken about before, about the rise of, of the far right and the pandemic again, they have exploited, as you can imagine, in relation to sort of anti-mass protests, anti-lockdown protests. And we've seen a small group of that that has started to exist, this sort of Irish yellow vest movement. And these are people who, while if you look at the English far right, um, they hark back, you know, to a time of the empire and a time, you know, of a, an all white um, Britain, you know, with, with union flags flying and bumping on every lamppost. What we have with the Irish far right is people who look back to a time when the church and state was one and the same when Ireland was controlled by the Catholic Church and when all of the, the social restrictions that existed because of that in terms of women's reproductive rights, in terms of, of same-sex marriage, in, in terms of, of all other aspects of social modernization that have taken place quite rapidly in the south of Ireland, um, slower in the north, but we are we are getting there in a, at a slower, slower pace. And for them, that becomes quite nearly an environment. And we've seen people who, for some reason, would rather live back in and that old Ireland, you know, the Ireland of thatched cottages and, and women being locked in Magdalene laundries. And those people have seized on the, the, the pandemic and the, the, the sort of far right anti-mask, anti-lockdown, new world order um, type nonsense. And at the start, it's easy to dismiss those people. And I think we do that at our peril because the protests have been getting larger and larger. And at the weekend, there was a protest in London with several thousand people in attendance. And I think that that's quite dangerous 
And that is possibly what ourselves as a journalist and as a journalist who would consider myself a socialist and consider myself to be on the left. It's a, it's a very, very dangerous game for us to dismiss those people as, you know, as crackpots or, you know, skinheads or as far right or whatever, that we have to, to know that the more that we feed into that conspiracy theory by not not challenging that ideology or not even recognizing that it exists, it grows in, in the shadows and grows in the, the darkness. Um, and that wouldn't be the type of, I don't think, the, the type of Ireland that anyone would want to live in the future. So what I would say in terms of, of our politics here and, and the nationalist you know, version of our politics, that we came out of, of a conflict and to talk about reunification was, was almost taboo then because what it was saying is, is that you hadn't accepted that the peace process had been a success um, and that you wanted to go back to times when, when things here were very different and, and very violent and we had a, a manned border and a hard border. Um, and there's a there's a fear that this current Brexit deal and as we head towards the the, the end of the, the trade agreement negotiations and come January, nobody knows what's going to happen. There has to be checks on this island. You can't not have checks. Boris Johnson knows that. They have to take place somewhere. The, the compromise was that they would take place at ports and therefore you wouldn't see them. You wouldn't see any infrastructure. This internal markets bill is, is threatening now to take that away because unionism doesn't like what they call a sea border and us being in any sort of regulatory alliance with the south of Ireland. And therefore, there's a very real danger that we're going to have border posts and customs posts at the border. And that would just be, I think, a, a massive backward step in terms of our peace process and in terms of the stability of this island. And I think that that's something when I'm listening to debates in Westminster that they just don't get. You know, I think that a lot of people think when they talk about the um, the border in Ireland, they think it's like a border when you go on holiday and you get stopped and you hand over your passport. And it's nothing like that. It's, it's green fields and it's it's farms and it's people whose living room is in the south and in the kitchens in the north. Um, there's 10,000 people cross back and forth across it every day for work and education and all sorts of other things. It is completely open and it's seamless. And apart from the fact that the road signs change from miles to kilometres, you wouldn't actually know it was there or know it existed at all. And we're now heading back to a time we're in the pursuit of, of, of a, a very damaging ERG style Brexit that will have the possibility that those structures are going to start appearing again for different reasons in one way that would be damaging their peace and in another way i think that you know that, that those to the left and those who favor unification can see that as an opportunity to say to young people you know look this is um the the place who we are sort of handcuffed to if you like in in westminster this is the damage that they're causing to our economy they have put that there. there's a very easy way to take that away and you wonder would people be voting to be part of of United Ireland are voting to just go back into Europe again. And I think the same thing has happened with Scottish independence. So what's happened to that debate is it's turned not just to an independent Scotland, but it's also a Scotland that will return to some kind of, of EU membership. And so that's given it an added push because that's taken people who may not necessarily be deadly patriotic in one way or another, but that's pushing it into an economic field. Um, and all of those things are issues that the left or those who you know are in favour of unification can't say that was some master plan that they come up with because they're all incidents that have been thrust upon us, either unexpectedly or against our will. Um, and those are all issues that I think going forward that we're going to be discussing more and more. And so I would never have thought if you talked about the 100th anniversary of the formation of Northern Ireland that would be we would be in the position that we are in, but the, the fact is now with changing demographics, changing economic situations, and the fact that the South now looks socially more progressive for younger for a younger generation, I think it, it seems to be economically and socially faster growing. 
it gives them something then to aspire to. So when you think about who who are pushing this agenda, those on, on the far right, those who insist on slowing down social change, those who insist on a, a hard Brexit, they are doing more, I think, for the campaign for, for nationalist reunification than anyone else. The, the problem is that the, the Ireland that had been expected to exist did we ever get reunification, you know, a sort of 32 socialist republic that doesn't exist anymore. You know, the, the Ireland of my modern times is one that is fairly capitalist for companies, you know, like like Google and Yahoo um, pay less tax probably, you know, than your average shop worker. Um, and all of those things, I think, are, are something that we do come when we do come seriously to talk about a border poll and to talk about what will happen in the, the, in, in the times of a referendum. There are issues that are probably going to come more and more to the front. They're not being discussed now um, at any great length, but I think that they will be discussed as uh, discussed further as we go forward, especially among young people who are angry at that sort of capitalisation of, of property and, and things that, that mean that they're going to be renters for the rest of their life and all sorts of other issues that we find with, with grossly capitalist societies. Um, and, and all of that, is, as I said, if you'd have asked me, you know, in, in my childhood when I lived in a very violent place and a place where I had to you know pass a, a soldier at the bottom of my garden path every morning on the way to school I didn't expect that we would have changed so dramatically in such a time and while we do have peace we also have politically and political instability now that I don't think that when we all went into that euphoria of the peace process 20 years ago that any of us expected and a lot of that is to do with English nationalism and the English far right and and when we talk about the English far right I think it's easy to think of you know skinheads and football shirts but you know the real English far right are, are, you know, the people walking the halls of power and sitting on the green benches, you know, the, the, the people of wealth and property, they're the actual elite, you know, the, the elite of the establishment. They're pushing this agenda, which is to the detriment, I think, of, of the working class people, regardless of whether you live in England, Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland. Great. Thank you so much, Alison. Um, covered so much ground there. That was excellent. And, um, and I think... You know, every year or two since 2014, I've gone um, to the north of Arden to go and chat to people in the street about kind of constitutional questions and so on. And I think uh, exactly as you kind of conjured up there, what's always been striking is how much it's a pragmatic choice for people. So I remember in 2014, people, you know, I'd go to kind of majority Catholic areas of Belfast and people would say, well, actually, secretly, you know, I'd call myself a nationalist, but the NHS is pretty great. I'd probably stay in the UK. You go now to places like Coleraine, majority supposedly unionist places, and you talk to young people there, and the number of them will say, "Well, I, I can't tell my parents this, but actually, you know, now we're leaving the EU is extraordinary." And um, I think you conjured that very well, and that's very important. Um, so now we're going to cut to questions, and um, and we've had a few in. Um, I, uh, I, I'm going to start with a, um, and I, they're kind of streaming in very fast, and I should say that in the kind of comments section, there's a whole load of discussion going on, and some of it's questions, and it, it's possible that you've written a kind of brilliant, succinct question that I have missed. So if you have, feel free to, um, to repaste that into the chat now, so I'm more likely to see it. But I'm going um, to start with um, Lorcan Mullen's question. So Lorcan said, I think, very well. The key question is, how can the left each place actually build a common politics that respects self-determination but can actually gather enough power to do transformative necessary things? And that's been that's been put down um, written there in front of you. So um, would any of the four of you like to jump in on that 
first with a response. And if you could just have kind of quick one minute responses and we're going to then come back around and we're going to hopefully in the meantime, people are going to paste more questions into the chat. So thank you. Who, who wants to go first? If not, I'll pick on someone. Harriet, why don't you jump in? I just posted in the chat, shock and not me first. Are you kidding right. me? <laughs> um, I think this is what I was trying to allude to earlier when I was talking about how we break the British state and how we break the internal mechanisms that are there to fight against socialism. So I think by different nationalist movements or self whatever you want to call it, and I know language plays a big part in this, um, they need to be framed around common values that the left could agree on. So, for example, there is a lot of, say, the Scottish nationalist movement that could be, or the progressive end of the Scottish nationalist movement that could easily be repeated here in Wales. For example, like the Radical Independence Campaign in Scotland, um, we now have an organisation in Wales called Eendod that was set up in kind of direct response to that. And I think it's those kind of values that we can see um, being inspired from Scotland that we're now having the same conversation here in Wales which could break the British state and could also end up making uh, a more socialist, independent state, if that makes sense. You made me go first, so it's probably a terrible answer. But Sorry, I <laughs> literally, it popped up saying you didn't want to go first as I was saying your name. Rory, Rory you have, Rory's volunteered. We've got a little private chat you see, behind the scenes, so I can actually see them. Rory says, I can come in. Rory. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic question, Lorcan. Um, the idea of doing things UK-wide, I mean, it's, it's almost circular because one of the main reasons that people are starting to embrace nationalist sort of politics um, in places like Scotland and Wales is because they are no longer seeing a means of asserting themselves at the UK level. And the, the people that really need to do the work and the run on this stuff are in England. There's, there's only so much Scotland else can do. Um, and one of the main reasons to shift is uh, the centre of English identity. I think Alex's work is fantastic on this. That, that um, so long as English political identity is this kind of like passive, looking south to London and Westminster, it's going to be incredibly hard to build up a kind of um, integrated left that takes into account the kind of demands for self determination of Scotland, Wales, people in the north of Ireland, um, and I think one of the key ways of, of shifting that is to start building up more politicized territorial identities in England. So again, I completely agree with Alex that English progressive nationalism seems like a dead end on this because it will probably only reinforce that massive territorial gulf in England between North and South. And um, it could just as easily be used to consolidate power in the South than, than redistribute it North. And I think that's where comrades in both Scotland and Wales can contribute is by kind of evangelizing about using territorial politics to get noticed and get yourself get your foot in the door um, if the north of england developed a territorial politics that was a threat not just to london but frankly a progressive threat to labor it could get noticed a lot more a lot easier um, the fact that, that you know territorial politics in the north of england has become uh, Brexit, basically, or appears to have done so, and has become something that's very easily portrayed as right-wing, probably is quite right-wing, um, 
is a real problem because what we actually need is a left-wing territorial politics in the north and in, in places like the southwest of England as well, in places like Cornwall, that can threaten labour and kind of blackmail labour into taking territorial demands seriously and starting to seriously decentralise things. Labour is still so wedded to this idea of parliamentary sovereignty. Keir Starmer doesn't waffle about progressive federalism already and I've seen no evidence he believes it. Until the English Labour left starts very seriously considering the uh, British constitution and the centralization of sovereignty at, in the in the UK parliament. I just see very little hope for a kind of seriously unified um, effort to kind of start breaking up some of that power because we really need, we're, we're waiting for England to kind of <clears throat> do something about uh, where power lies now. And I think breaking up um, English territorial power is really central for that. Thank you, Rory. It, it always strikes me as astounding that um, so much of the Labour Party, particularly the English Labour Party, thinks it's possible to believe in the Westminster system under which sovereignty lies with the Crown in Parliament and also call yourself a socialist. Either you are a socialist and believe in popular sovereignty or you believe in the Westminster system and the Crown in Parliament. I don't see how those two things are compatible in any way. Socialism is about democracy, which means popular sovereignty. Um, would either Alex or Alison like to come in on, on that last question, or shall we continue? Um, I think that, that what the left are failing to do is, is take in the, the very simple, normal, ordinary day-to-day -day life politics, which, which unites us all. And if you look at what's happened in the pandemic, if you look at the people who suffered most, if you look at the fact that the clusters existed within meat packet factories, people who were sent to pick fruit and live in unsuitable housing, the, the people living in direct provision, people in Leicester making you know dresses for pennies for online retailers, and all of those people were sacrificed. The shop workers on minimum wage were sacrificed for the rest of us were told to stay at home. And from the left and from the Labour left, I haven't heard anyone stand up in the Commons and defend the fact that capitalism has failed those people and has not only failed them, has basically deemed them as expendable, as expendable slave labour to be sent out into the marketplace to feed capitalist monster at the expense of their own health and in some cases of their own life um, and if this pandemic ever showed the failure of capitalism and where it goes down you've only to look at the figures and the numbers of, of people of colour who have lost their lives and a lot of that is to do with unsuitable working conditions and unsuitable living conditions and I don't understand if you're trying to form a, a unified left and if you're trying to find common ground that exists in all four regions why there hasn't been more shouting about the fact is this is what the reality of capitalism is and this is it on one scale, and it's, you know, Rhys Mogg and his mansions. Um, and this is it on the other scale, someone living in a shared house with 13 other people, you know, and working in a, a clothing factory um, and getting paid, you know, 50, 1.50 an hour. And I think that you need to show the disparity of wealth that exists in this country to really, really mobilise people, because a lot of that takes place behind closed doors. And I don't think that people realised and understood the actual material cost of capitalism in terms of human life that they would be so supportive of the, the current Westminster regime. Yeah. And Alex, do you want to jump in on this question or shall we? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, basically what, what Rory said. Uh, perhaps we should move on. I, you know, I don't have too much to add. I think he summarised things very well. Okay. Um, so for the audience, it might be that you've asked lots of great questions kind of previously in the conversation, but... They've got lost me in all the other chat that went on. So if you want to ask any more questions, please do type them into the chat box, um, which 
is on the right of my screen, so it's probably on yours as well. But in the meantime, I'm going to ask all four of you uh, a question of my own, which is, to what extent does this relate to or interact with um, the Black Lives Matter movement and perhaps the greater prominence of interrogation of British history and colonialism? I suppose what I mean by that is that I've always been astounded by the extent to which sort of progressive-ish people of an in, from England like to identify as British because they see that as a more progressive identity when I've always sort of responded, well, do you have any sense of what Britishness means to most of the world? Um, so I'd be interested in your thoughts on how the kind of Black Lives Matter debate, and not just the debate, but the fact that, you know, for example, Radiano Radiano Lodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, has been top of the book charts for in the top of the book charts for the last few months. And there has been a genuine process of kind of popular pedagogy um, in the last few months. You know, how that's shifted this conversation, do you think, where you are? Um, who wants to go first? Rory is offering. Thanks, Rory. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a hard question. I'm very conscious that everyone on this panel is white. Um, that's why I asked it. What one of one of the interesting things that's happened here, and this has always happened in the in British social movements, is that there is a, a kind of very slow process of territorial adjustment that happens. So there is there is a centre of British social movements, and it's almost always London. Um, and and that centre adopts certain causes, um, gets gets kind of fired up about certain causes, and then the peripheries adjust themselves to it. And will pick up on those things as well, and then and then gradually ad adapt them to their own circumstances. And that's what's been happening in Scotland a bit is that Scotland has taken up the kind of mantle of the protests in Bristol or in Black Lives Matter, where the the left in Scotland has started. And and it's been fantastic in some ways in that it's prompted uh, people in Scotland to really start grappling with Scotland's own colonial history for the first time. And that's got quite an interesting disruptive effect on some narratives of Scottish nationalism about Scotland being a colony, um, where actually, you know, as soon as this issue pops up, it starts to prompt people to go, well, you instantly start finding out how complicit Scotland was. You find that huge swathes of Glasgow and Edinburgh were funded by slave trade. Or, um, you find that there's, there's statues and buildings named after people who were entirely involved with this and had deeply racist views and so on. Um, the other thing it's done is prompted people actually organizing these protests insofar as protests in Scotland have been led by um, black people. They have been able to form identities that had, I mean, the, the, the form uh, movements and organizations to mobilize around these issues um, in a way that really isn't prioritized in Scottish political discourse, just because Scotland is so dominated by basically um, the politics of Scottish nationalism, which is overwhelmingly white. Um, and so it, those, it's actually an interesting kind of unionist case for um, these things where priorities in London, we have a much bigger population of uh, BAME people. Um, these things can, can force those issues onto the agenda of countries like Scotland, where people have much less representation. Um, and that process of adaptation is very important. Um, but it does still mean that the, the center of gravity is elsewhere. And um, shifting that center of gravity so that Scotland can start to engage with these 
questions on its own terms, um, rather than having to adapt uh, issues that have, are kind of been forged far away. That's one important part of these struggles, I think. Thank you, Rory. And um, anyone else who who's next? Harriet, right. You know you're muted, Harriet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to nod to what Rory said there, which always comes up in these discussions around nationalism, is the idea of the nations of the UK being colonised by the English. Um, like that discussion uh, we can have, um, sorry, I just paused. Uh, that's a big discussion that we can have, but it's also a very sensitive discussion. And Adam Price, for example, um, interjected last year by saying that he thinks England should pay uh, Wales reparations for um, its colonisation of Wales, which many people in the BAME community in Wales, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, so I won't, were like, what on earth? <laughs> like what on earth are you doing and it prompted a really helpful discussion actually around the nature of um racism domination and institutional racism within uh within wales um but i also think more broadly politically i think this is a bit of a problem for us in wales in the sense that we were the only nation in the uk in the last senate election to elect uh eight ukip seats and then brexit party seats um, most of them have defected now because um, they were uh, nutters, if I can put that uh, put that into the conversation, and they've defected to random crank parties. But it's a big problem for us that some of that really reactionary and hostile opinion uh, really came to the fore in the last Senate election. So at the same time as you've got like the Plaid Cymru um, type of nationalism that says, you know, we want to live in an inclusive and anti-racist society. You've also got the Welsh reactionary nationalism that can be very hostile and racist, even though Adam Price said that stupid thing. Um, so these these two kind of, you know, we've got to work our way through this, like what type of Wales we want to live in. This is going to be some of the key questions. I, I think the difference for me is while you are Scottish, you know, Welsh and English, you still identify also as British. Whereas I have never felt British, I have always felt Irish, regardless of whether I live in part of the United Kingdom or not. So, you know, British colonialism, I have no attachment to it whatsoever. And I've always thought it was a destructive force, um, certainly in the, the history of my island and that I live in. We were a very white society. We had a peace process that was able to work and address the inequality between nationalists and unions because I believe we were all the same colour. Had we been of different colour, that would have been a much harder thing to achieve. And that equality would have been a much harder thing to achieve. But what I did notice is during the Black Lives Matter protests that took place in Northern Ireland, despite the fact that we had huge you know, Republican funerals, huge demonstrations over the 12th of July, the police stayed well back and didn't find anyone, but showed up a very peaceful Black Lives Matter protest in which people were socially distanced and handed out fines to the organisers. And in terms of the PSNI, which is, I think, at this point in time, there are only 0.3% um, of the people who work for the police force of Northern Ireland who are people of colour. That was a very bad look and the optics of that were incredibly poor in terms of trying to you know integrate people who have made this place their home and contributed so much to our island um, and i think that there is an opportunity there to, to reach out in, in terms of those people who are on the left and who do agree with socialist politics the people who nobody came let's face it this was a very white place northern ireland why barely anyone want to emigrate here it was a fucking shithole um you know we were all fighting with each other but that has changed and we now are in a change in much more multicultural society and I think that there's a real opportunity because these are quite unlike I suppose the history of migration in other parts of the UK this is quite new here so these people are coming here willingly to make this place their home and I think that there's an opportunity to reach out and transform 
and left alliance with those who, who wish to, to, to join that from here in terms of the betterment of all our lives. Thank you, Alison. Um, and Alex, do you want to jump in on this? Or? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I guess this sort of raised, raises the sort of separate but related question of, um, you know, I think one of the most important things in this discussion is really that we really have to, certainly from a socialist perspective, detach the relationship between uh, territory and ethnicity. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's something you, you, you can't get away from when you're talking about nations and nationhoods, certainly sort of going back historically, um, you know, to the, to the early 20th century and, and beforehand, the fact that this whole sort of discourse of, of kind of small nations has at its centre or had at its centre this question of ethnicity. Um, and I think that is something we really have to kind of, um, if we're kind of trying to counterpose a kind of left uh, movement for uh, devolution and perhaps uh, both kind of national and regional devolution, you have to kind of try to detach uh, kind of essentialist definitions of ethnicity um, from debates about, you know, how to, how to kind of form progressive modern nations or, or regions. Um, and I think certainly in an English context, that's one thing that um, a discourse about re regionalism or kind of um, some kind of uh, civic territorialism has going for it is that it, you know, it doesn't, uh, you know, regionalism can be sort of hijacked by kind of rightist notions of ethnicity, but usually they're, they're more kind of dependent on your attachment to a city or a town and its kind of institutional culture, its infrastructure, it's much, much more fluid than these kind of more monolithic kind of, you know, ethno-nationalist uh, notions. So I think, um, uh, you know, it's slightly, slight tangent from, from BLM, but, you know, I think sort of relatedly, um, if, we look, if we're talking about a kind of progressive left movement towards nationalism and, and, and kind of civic regionalism, then we really have to, be sure that we're sort of detaching, you know, these kind of simplified notions about, you know, what what constitutes, you know, the English, um, and perhaps, you know, the Scottish, the Welsh, and the Irish, um, you know, the English don't really exist as a kind of um, as, a, as a kind of, you know, essentialist thing. Thanks, Alex. Um, I'm sort of maybe we'll get into that conversation later. I'm tempted to uh, ask you about. Tom Nairn and Perry Anderson and all that, but perhaps we'll come to that um, in a bit because we've got a great question from Sarah, um, Sarah C, I think it is, um, who asks, um, it, so her question is, independence is popular on the Scottish left, but Scottish Labour is still firmly wedded to unionism. How can we build support for non-SNP independent Scotland within the party, as within the Labour party? I'm going to expand that slightly so it applies to all three of you. So that for Rory, but then ask the same question about Wales for Harry, you know, if half of Labour supporters in Wales support independence, how can the Labour Party in Wales avoid the fate of Scottish Labour, which has been seen to be, you know, so bound to one side of the constitutional divide and the side that frankly is seen by most Scottish people as the right wing of it. And then similarly, Alex, you know, how can English Labour begin to come to terms with this kind of shift in understanding and come to terms with the idea that maybe it's English Labour? Um, but Rory, I'm going to come to you first on that. Um, this is hard. Um, Scot Welsh Labour are in a better position for this, I would say. And Scottish Labour really missed the boat a bit. Um, a lot of the people who could have helped to make that shift 
of the Scottish Labour Party towards a position that, if not pro-independence, is at least open to the idea, certainly open to some idea of greater Scottish self-determination, has a more nuanced engagement with Scottish identity. A lot of those people have already left. Um, and they've left for good, I think. Um, they've joined the SNP, they've joined the Greens, they've joined, they've just left electoral politics altogether. Um, and the result is a kind of reinforcing uh, downward cycle where the people who are left are more hardline unionists and they put off the other people. Um, so I've been arguing for ages that Scottish Labour needs to shift its position on, on these questions and I tend to get yelled at by people with a lot more power in the party than I do. Um, and the trouble is that the other trouble is that the voters we have left are uh, pretty split, uh, to put it uh, at least pretty split. I mean, it's, we're looking at about 30 to 40% at best who are pro independence of Scottish Labour voters. Um, there's a decent chunk of Scottish Labour voters who I would say are pretty opposed to independence. Um, and so a shift of the part in that is needs to be kind of committed to um, and needs to be argued for. And I think there's an element of it which is kind of going to be done through sheer unpleasant experience as we continue losing. They will have just have to acknowledge reality. It will become increasingly unrealistic for Scottish Labour to oppose um, independence as, as furiously as it currently does. It's absolutely vital that they at some point come round to it because after independence, if it happens, Scotland will need a party of the left. And so I think the best place it's going to come from is actually outside the party and in the labour movement. In the, in the trade unions, there's a lot more support for independence. Trade union leaderships are much more open to it. And I think that's where the work has to be done. I think people need to start shifting the unions towards a stronger stance on this stuff, at the very least on supporting a second referendum. Organisations like the Scottish Trades Union Congress um, and the leaderships of the big unions are where I think that the shift is going to have to happen first. Thanks, Rory. And um, Harry, are you okay talking about the Welsh context? So I think we are in a much better position, as Rory says. And I think this is probably where my lack of historical analysis could come in handy. But <laughs> from uh, from my own political perspective, I guess the, the difference between the Rodri Morgan-esque leadership of what was then now the Welsh Parliament and the concept of the clear red water between um, Labour in Westminster and Labour in Wales had already differentiated on the basis of the nation within the Labour Party. So you already had those two ideologies at battle within the party at that time. Um, so I think this has kind of opened the door to many of um, the politicians in the Welsh Parliament to have their own Welsh Labour cultural identity um, and yeah, I have to be careful what I say because I don't want to like give the game away for anyone. But we do have a lot of Welsh Assembly politicians that come to us to labour for an indie Wales saying, I totally support you. I just can't publicly say it. So they're already like halfway there and they already understand that, especially with this new internal bill, that they're going to be power grabs back from the Tories. Like we always knew this was going to happen and now it's happened. It's going to really radicalise the uh, MSs. First of all, they want to keep their jobs. Second of all, they spent the last 20 years building a project around Welsh national identity and Welsh labour. Um, I do worry, though, the younger generations, as I said to you, um, you earlier, the Welsh Twitter generations are much more applied inclined because they've been much more progressive on this topic. We've kind of sat back as Welsh labourers, as the managers of uh, 
of uh, Welsh capitalism and Welsh devolution. Whereas, yeah, young Twitterers, that's not a word, young Welsh people on Twitter are way more inclined to the more radical elements of Welsh politics and seem to be more drawn towards Plaid. And so the Corbyn project is gone now. I do worry that now 16-year-olds have got the vote in Wales that they will be voting more for Plaid than Labour, which is why we need a radical left Welsh Labour Party. And Alex, what do you make of all that? Um, yeah, well, sorry, could you just, Adam, could you just remind me how you were going to kind of redirect that towards the English? Well, I, su I suppose the question is, you know, if English Labour at the moment is very wedded to unionism, mm -hmm. when the lefts of Scotland and Wales are not particularly, um, then, you know, in a sense, it's English Labour which is getting in the way of of this almost more than, you know, or potentially, certainly more than the Welsh Labour Party is. Um, Scottish yeah. Labour, as Robin said, is a different question. So how can the English Labour Party be supported to think this stuff through some more? Sure. Yeah, well, I think, sort of, thinking cynically, I mean, I think the English left is probably not going to think about this until it comes knocking on the door, you know, in the advent of, um, you know, Scottish independence or some form of kind of, uh, major Scottish schism, perhaps in Wales as well. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Eng England as the kind of imperial centre, I think the criticisms that um, Harriet sort of started off talking talking about are very fair. There's a kind of myopia in England about Wales and Scotland, you know, let alone Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, so I think kind of, unfortunately, um, I'm, I'm not that optimistic that um, the in, you know, we in England are, are going to kind of think about these things in the ways that we need to until we are kind of forced to, to do so. Um, more hopefully, what, what we can do on the left is try, is try to um, sort of decisively break with that kind of lingering, uh, you know, kind of 20th century unionism that certainly in a Scottish context, uh, Rory's talked about, um, which isn't to say that, you know, there aren't kind of ways in which we can think about um you know connections between uh kind of certainly kind of network connections between um english and scottish labor english and welsh labor and obviously islands are kind of again a kind of separate discussion um, but i think we just need to kind of get get rid of that kind of kind of lingering 20th century unionism that even you know the, the socialist campaign group you know even kind of uh you know corbyn and mcdonald if i remember correctly in 2014 were uh very much you know kind of rehashing this kind of lazy unionist, these kind of lazy, lazy kind of unionist commonplaces. So I think we're unfortunately at quite a kind of difficult and and, and uh, kind of pessimism inducing point of our history uh, on the left and, and in general. But I think in order to kind of start uh, looking forward to that kind of longer process of, um, you know, what do we do after the, the breakup, breakup of Britain, which is, is probably inevitable, I think just getting rid instantly of that kind of lingering, lazy kind of 20th century unionism that we have, have, have kind of had even on the left is, is the way to go. Great. Thank you, Alex. Um, and, you know, as you say, whether comrades in England want to talk about this or not, you're going to have to. So you might as well get your lines in. Um, the next question, which I think might be our final question, unless, um, you know, I'm told otherwise, is from Theodora, and she says that the left generally should be in favour of taking down borders, not erecting them. Will a federal republic in Britain 
with strong devolutionary powers make a more fertile ground for socialist politics. And um, I'm going to start with Harriet this time, if that's okay, Harriet. I mean, yeah, of course, but what is the route to that? We tried. We lost. <laughs> if you can show me the route to it, I'm happy to give it a bash. I've given it a bash. I've given my life to the bloody Labour Party and I'm continuing to do so. I'm questioning that right now. Um, but if there are ways for us to do that, then fantastic. I'm more than willing to have this conversation, but they're not. The British state, once again, clamps down along with all of the media in it to stop us from having a socialist government. So the only way we can look at alternatives are through, um, in my opinion, um, Welsh nationalism or Welsh evil. Like, it's really difficult to say this without saying the word nationalism, right? Because, like, that brings up all these things for people. But, like, in Wales and in Scotland, we can have these conversations. And I think people in England should, like, champion them so they can have the same conversations too. Rory. Um, the great irony of all of this always is that the things, the only thing that really effectively forces Britain to decentralise any power whatsoever is nationalism. Again and again and again, this is what we've seen. Every wave of British centralisation as well tends to be accompanied by a performance of decentralisation. Is what Tom Nairn called it, virtual liberation, where um, England and, and, and the UK is constantly coming up with new schemes of creating new tiers of local government or creating devolution and so on. And at the exact same time as it's coming up with them, it's massively centralizing power. I mean, Blair hugely centralized power while creating devolution at the same time. This is the great paradox of Britishness is that every performance of decentralization, you talk about further devolution. Uh, you know, Enoch Powell said, the power devolved is power retained. And and that that really is the mantra, despite everyone's disagreement with Enoch Powell, that's the mantra of British decentralization is that it's always about giving people power with permission. Like they're never actually given sovereignty. They're always given um, the permission to use some powers on behalf of the British state. And that's the trouble with framing federalism as devolution. These are mutually exclusive things. Federalism means genuinely shared sovereignty. Devolution means sovereignty is retained at Westminster and the devolved power is allowed to use the power that sovereignty grants. Um, we're, we're seeing right now what that really means as the UK government is suddenly able to immediately centralise everything back with the Internal Markets Bill. And they can just do it. They don't have to ask the Scottish Parliament for permission. They can just override it completely. And that's the trouble with devolution. There is no devolutionary solution to these problems because power devolved is power retained. Federalism would need um, some kind of fundamental change at the centre of Britain. And I've seen no evidence whatsoever that Labour really believes in that. Because as soon as Labour gets into power with a majority, why on earth would it want to give up power that it has? Um, Britain, and Britain, and that, that's a problem for Labour too, because it makes British power fundamentally reversible. You can win, you can pass a bunch of laws, next government gets in and just overwhelms it all again. You'd need a written constitution. You'd need, uh, you'd need evenly balanced uh, federal regions, which would mean breaking up England. You'd need uh, you probably need proportional representation for it to work properly. I mean, the number of things that would have to change is just extraordinary. And the only thing that's really going to do it is if Britain is going to break up anyway. And I think the best solution, constitutionally speaking, I mean, I, I want there to be some kind of bonds with the rest of the UK uh, where we can pool and share resources and so on. That You know, that's a nice idea. But if that's to be on really equal terms and modern democratic terms, I think we actually need to break up first. 
what we need is a kind of disunion and reunion on confederal and egalitarian grounds when sovereignty grows from the bottom up rather than being kind of occasionally handed out from the top down. So I would say that the most progressive future for Britain is probably confederalist um, rather than, than some kind of pretend devolved federalism. Thank you to my confederalist comrade. Um, I feel like, you know, Roy and I are basically the only people who have made that case. So, you know. Um, Alex, um, yeah. thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Rory. And I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, just to reiterate, yeah, I think, it, you know, this is this is going to, it isn't, we're not going to have this, you know, a federalist or a kind of confederalist uh, breakup of uh, England certainly isn't is not going to happen anytime soon and it, it's much more likely that it's going to happen with a kind of, with the kind of external shock of uh scottish and welsh particularly uh, perhaps more Im imminently scottish independence um i mean realistically what that's gonna um lead to is a, is a kind of is a, is a sort of chaos in in england and a kind of a, a period of sort of bewilderment and confusion about what on earth we are because it you know as i sort of said in, in my introduction you know still this still really englishness is hinges on in most contexts hinges on a very confused kind of lingering britishness um so i just think you know we, we're gonna have a breakup of britain is is kind of happening if it doesn't come from scotland or wales it's going to come from uh ireland um and, and then we're just going to be kind of thrust into this incredibly chaotic kind of scorched earth context where you know no one really knows what's going on and we don't really know what um what england and english this are if we if, uh if we ever did um so i'm not you know i'm not quite sure it's it's difficult to predict what's going to happen in that in that scenario but obviously as Rory says you know the thing that that, that should happen is um you know a genuinely kind of sovereign de democratic uh reorganization of um of the constituent parts of england so that they're not being ruled over in a kind of quasi-imperialist, uh, non-federalist, non-federalized way. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I mean, the thing that always strikes me is that in order to get a federal UK, you have to persuade Westminster and the people of England to give up the sovereign power of the monarchy. And that's, you know, good luck with that um, yeah. as a political project. Um, so anyway, I'm gonna wrap up there. Uh, um, thank you so much. I should have said before that Alison, I'm afraid, told us in our private secret chat that you guys can't see that her editor was summoning her away. So she sends her love and solidarity, but had to leave us a little bit early. Um, but you heard from Alison Morris, who, um, as I said before, is a fantastic journalist in Ireland and do follow her work there. You heard from Harriet Rotheroy Sultani, who, as well as being a professional trade union organizer and uh, Momentum Vice Chair is a great writer now and again, and so do look up her writing. Um, Alec is one of those people who, you know, combines a whole range of skills in the world. I, I was looking at his Wikipedia page earlier about how you were in like an indie band? Yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> not, not anymore, right, I see. But anyway, like a good enough one to have a Wikipedia page, which is, you know, pretty serious. Like these things get cold. Um, as well as a great writer and academic and thinker, and um, his thoughts are much appreciated. And Rory Scothorn is a wonderful activist and thinker and academic here in Scotland and a uh, long-term comrade on the Scottish 
left, and it's uh, always a joy to do events with him. Um, I've been Adam Ramsey from Open Democracy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your wonderful questions, and hope to see you all again soon. View the full TWT20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransforms.org.